Good morning. New attitudes and creative actions each day is a celebration of the glory of God. To recapture the power of praise, let us begin the call to worship by reading exhortations to praise God in Psalms 96. If you'll open your Bibles and read with me. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord, all the earth. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Two Bible pages, 602, 603 for Proverbs 22, verse 2 and verse 7. The rich and poor meet together the Lord is the maker of them all. The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is the servant of the lender. You turn into your few Bibles, page 1070. This is 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have scattered abroad their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way, 
so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proven yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and in your pew Bible, it's page 971. While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people putting their gifts into the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two pennies. I assure you, he said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. I don't know about you, but for the risk of throwing my back out, I won't stoop to pick up two pennies. The medical uh, costs would far outstrip the benefits. And that's the world in which we live. I was uh, really delighted and sobered some time back, not, not terribly far back, when an envelope came to the church and I looked at the envelope, and at the time the envelope was being sent, uh, which was from a couple, the husband was in a coma. The wife had had a stroke um, and had designated a power of attorney or someone to manage their affairs, and part of the instruction, even at this very late degenerated point in life, was that tithe was to come to the storehouse. And so on their social security or retirement income had come a tithe check, this representation of incredible faithfulness. And I thought of the story that was just read, The Widow's Might, and the incredible faithfulness. You see, in order to, for Bill Gates to give as much as she gave, he would have to surrender his entire fortune. That's how much that's worth. When you give all that you have, you've given all that you have. And proportionately, 100% is 100%, whether we're talking about a trillion dollars or two pennies. God doesn't ask for 10%. He doesn't ask for 12 or 13 or 15 or even 20. What God asks for is 100%. And if your theology isn't there, I want to work with you just a little bit on that. You see, you were bought with a price. That last sentence in the Corinthians text 
says something that Bunny just read, remarkably powerful. And thank God for his indescribable gift. Who is that referring to? Jesus Christ. Heaven <laughs> emptied itself, as it were, for you. God purchased you back with a price. The ransom was paid. You have been reconciled and redeemed. You belong to God by virtue of creation, and you belong to God by virtue of redemption. And he who made the world and everything in it owns everything. One sure thing I can tell you, you can do good estate planning, but you can't take it with you. One day we shall all quit breathing. Naked we were born and naked we shall go. And unto dust shall we return where the dead know nothing. And the dollars accumulated mean nothing at that point. The gold and silver accumulated at that point means nothing. Real estate, nothing. Maybe for your progeny or for select charities if you've done a good job of estate planning. But not for you. And so with this notion that Christ has given all and God has spared nothing for us, that we have been bought with a price, the idea that I want to get back to a standard that I think we sometimes forget is that our entire beings, all of our lives, all of our resources are God's. What he requires is 100%, nothing less. In the case of the widow, she became a great illustration because she steps up to make her offering very humbly, very anonymously, very quickly. She doesn't want attention. She doesn't want notice. She knows two pennies is nothing, just like you and I know two pennies is nothing. In fact, we all know, I think, if you're aware, you know that it costs our government something like two pennies to make a penny. It's, it's uh, not quite that bad, but it's really close. We're losing money manufacturing. In fact, there's question as to whether we should still, still keep the nickel in circulation because of the cost of, of making money. So it, it, its value is nothing except its symbolic value. And I want to tell you, this church runs on the widow's might. It isn't, it's the faithfulness of everyone that makes things work. And... Uh, it's a remarkable thing when someone in a very interesting place in their, their journey in their lives at the very end with the suffering that's going on has still made the choice to remember the church and to honor God and to give. That's a remarkable choice. So one of the standards that I've, I've been talking about that has to do with freedom has to do with tithing and money management. Now you say, how am I free when I tithe? Well, I'm not going to quote too much from Malachi. You can see it wasn't one of the readings today. But God in Malachi to the people of Israel says, you've robbed me of tithes and offerings, and in doing so you've brought a great curse upon yourself. You've failed to receive the blessing. I'm not so much into a God of blessings and curses as I am to tell you that God knew what he was saying. When we don't pay attention to the flow of reality in life, we lose out, and that includes your tithes and includes your offerings. And I haven't done the statistical work. Maybe I should take the time. If we broke down tithe, our tithe base to every 
adult in our congregation who was a member, not somebody who was even visiting regularly or ongoing, or not somebody who was uh, fairly new to the community but hadn't had time to join it yet. If we just narrowed it down to adult members, our tithe would be reflective of something like a $24,000 annual income. At that income, none of you would afford cars, none of you would be living in houses, none of you would really have jobs that were above the minimum wage level. So what that means is that we're not entirely faithful. What that means is that as a corporation, we're not all participating as we might in tithes and offerings. Some of us are robbing God and we're losing the benefit and blessing that comes with that. Well, enough about that particular part of the standard. What Wes read to us today came from Proverbs. And I thought it was interesting. The poor and the rich, they live together. They live in the same cities and towns, different neighborhoods. And God is the God of all of them. But the rich rule over the poor. That's true even in a democracy too, isn't it? Aren't you seeing the ways in which politics are influenced by money as we come to the presidential elections? Money is going to make a big difference in the outcome of things. Where the wealthy and the corporations put their resources will make a big difference. So, yes, in our society, even in a democracy, the rich rule over the poor. And the debt, those who have debt, are the slaves to whom they, from whom they borrowed. How many of you own a house? You don't have to be afraid, or a condo, or whatever, just a trailer, whatever you own. How many of you own something to live in? Raise your hands high. Okay, I'm guessing that not very many of you who raised your hand own it. How many of you have to, um, live in a place owned by the bank? I live in a place owned by a bank. In fact, they, they really own most of it. Um, I own a piece of it. And so I'm a borrower, and guess what that means? I don't own that house, it owns me. And I don't own that house, I owe to the bank for my livelihood in that house. And my lifeblood, week after week and month after month, gets spilled to paying for that house and the interest rate on that house. Now, I'm blessed, I just refinanced and did well on that, but still, you know, interest on a couple thousand bucks, you're lucky if you get 14 cents in your checking account or savings account and interest, right? That's because they don't compound it and they pay you like half of a percent or something, 0.2%. But when you get into a mortgage and you're paying three, four, five, six, seven percent on a couple hundred thousand dollars, all of a sudden that amount of money goes way, way, way up. It becomes real. And while we have ways of deducting that on our taxes and sort of trying to equalize things as we go through life and society, I think if you're honest, you admit you don't own your house, you don't own your cars, you don't own your tuition bills, you don't own whatever else they own you. Am I right? Wow, I guess some of you are living in a different reality than I am. You are dismissed. Potluck is still not for 20 or 30 minutes, but you're welcome to wait in the parking lot uh, or the uh, fireside room and chat amongst yourselves as to your, your good fortune because you are not in the boat with the rest of us. 
The Bible says neither a borrower or a lender be. We don't live in a society that functions that way, and there can be, really, for most of us, no chance of living in something we might one day own as we get toward retirement without borrowing. Even today, for most of us, if we want to replace a car with a newer car, even a used car, the prices are high enough that most of us don't have that kind of cash laying around. So we lease, we do special deals, we turn things back in, we keep cycling things through, we get great deals on used cars or go to auctions where we might mostly be able to pay for it or all pay for it, or we borrow. And we finance our cars even over two, three, five years. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on whether you own your car or it owns you. But it's an interesting thing. So, one of the things we need to teach our young people if we're going to be free is how to manage and how to live. And most of us are not modeling it. Most of our lives, though we're Christian and though we're Adventist, parallel exactly what's happening in the rest of the world. I don't know of that many more Adventists who didn't fall into the same pit everybody else did over 2008, 2009, 2010, and 11. And that was that the economy was so big and booming and going so great and so fast that not only had they borrowed to purchase their homes, but when the equity increased significantly, they borrowed again, taking second mortgages to pull equity out of their homes. Maybe it was to renovate, maybe it was to buy a boat or another car or to invest in another home. Maybe it was just to play, I don't know. But a lot of people did that. And then some people in addition took equity lines of credit. And then when the whole thing tanked, well, you know where you were. All of a sudden the house was worth way less than what you owed on it. Your income may not have changed, but the picture changed and it looked really dark and really difficult and really serious. I'm not beating you up. Millions of Americans did this. We just followed the course our culture is taking. But somehow or another, our young people are going to have even less opportunity than we will because of the debt structures of our society. Our national debt has climbed to what? Anybody know? It's, is it more than 11 trillion now? 14 trillion is the number I, somebody said. I, that I, anyway, it's more than 10 trillion. Just a decade and a half ago, it wasn't anywhere close to that. A decade and a half ago. So our children's futures are being mortgaged. And if we're going to, if we're going to let them be free and not be slaves because of the debt question, we're going to have to find a way as a people to model management. So let's go to the Old Testament really quickly. One of the ways God helped people balance things was jubilees and all of that. We don't have that in our society either, and we're not likely to. So again, we have to adapt from biblical principle and find a way to make this thing work. So how do we do that? Well, I want to recommend a couple of things to you. Uh, I'm going to be needing to read them myself again. I've looked at a couple of them, haven't read them through, have read portions of, of some, but anything by Susie Orman is likely to be helpful to you. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is likely to be helpful to you. What we want to do is teach our children to manage, which means living within their income and saving. 
Now, something Susie Orman says that I kind of disagree with is she says, tithe to yourself first. Okay, I'm close there. I'm with you, Susie. But I say tithe to the Lord first. And then tithe to yourself. That would be the right priority. So, you honor God, recognizing that he owns everything, giving back to him what he's asked for, a tenth, and the offerings on top of that. And then you save. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're already taxed, which we all are, and you're giving away 10 plus percent of your income, which if you itemize, by the way, can still be helpful to you tax-wise, in case you didn't know, but if you don't itemize, isn't. If you're giving away a tenth on top of that, how good do you have to be at managing to do that? Hello? Quite good. I will tell you that one of the reasons the Jewish people have prospered is tithing. Unapologetically. This is a group of people that learned from early on how to survive without a significant portion of their income. And when you learn to give up a portion of your income and live debt-free without that, you learn how to do even better on top of it. You learn money management skills. So the very building block of success, financially as well as spiritually, starts with the recognition that God wants you to move toward a direction where your management, your stewardship is so good that you can not only pay what you automatically get deducted in your taxes from your check, but you can give your tithe and return your tithe to the Lord. That's a management piece. The other thing has to do with what I see in the Olympics. How many of you are watching the Olympics? I've never watched so much television as I have in this last week as I have in the last year, and I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. I don't watch football, soccer, baseball. I don't watch sports, basketball much through the year. Maybe a little, but I don't watch the seasons. Come Olympic time, don't bother me. I'm sitting in front of my TV. I didn't know I was interested in the two women rowing team, but it's pretty cool. I didn't know I was interested in the clean and jerk, but I actually think that's amazing. I didn't know that I cared about who won judo, but when the national anthem plays, I'm pretty excited. Anybody like me out there? Oh, it's fun. I am just having a blast watching. And you know what? I'm, I'm, very, I'm very nationalistic in the sense that I'm delighted when an American wins. But you know what? I was thrilled watching a heat uh, in the women's, I think it was 200 meter yesterday, to see an Iraqi woman finish second. Woman finish second. Anybody see that heat? It was so exciting to me to know that a person from a country we've been at war with is competing in these games and that she's not wearing, you know, the burqa and whatever else is, and she's running and she's, she's winning, she's succeeding, she's doing well. It thrills me to see the excitement of all of these nations coming together and to see people at their best bringing it, bringing their competition, bringing their best to that. And this is just games. What if the peoples of the world bought, brought their best to the Lord? And it's so exciting to me to see how winning doesn't anymore seem to be, you know, never, it's not related necessarily to what country you come from. Very poor countries are producing absolutely outstanding athletes. Take Usain Bolt from Jamaica. I've never seen anything like it. 
he's a tornado on wheels. He's, anyways, an aberration that God made <laughs> so fast. It's thrilling to watch. So what's going on here? Could he still win without training? Could Usain Bolt win without training? No, of course not. And Paul talks about this. He talks about self-discipline. He talks about beating his body so that he might compete and win the prize. When Paul's talking about all of this, what is he getting at? What he's saying is that in order to enter a series of games, in order to win a crown that is made of olive branches, you must discipline yourself and you must compete. So excellence is tied to discipline. Regardless of the country you're from, your ethnic background or race, your socioeconomics, discipline is one of the key factors. The other is training. We in a society are raising generations now of people who are trained in a particular way. And we're headed toward disaster because they're uh, the generation we're raising up isn't healthy. It's not, not particularly disciplined. We've got some real challenges. And if we want our youth to thrive, we've got to do something about that. So the discipline starts with tithing, and then it goes to saving. And then it goes to investment. I don't know about you, but that's where it kind of falls apart for me. I've made investments in the, you know, I do the mutual fund thing in my retirement account, but it never seems to go anywhere. In fact, I look in some months, it's lower than it was the month before. Now that may just be the whole market fluctuation, but I feel like a person who always invests in loser mutual funds. <laughs> Any of the rest of you feel that way? I could teach you how to take 250,000 and in 10 years grow it to 240, no problem. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all about that. What I'm getting at is that there is a discipline of not only saving, but learning what risks to take and when. You see, we read in Jesus' own teachings, and he's really talking about the kingdom of God, but he's using a market example, and the market example is incredibly helpful. He says it's like a field that a man discovers a treasure in. And once he discovers the treasure, he reburies it in the field because the law says, if you own the field, you own what's in the field. And so he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys the field and recovers the treasure. That's what the kingdom of God is like. We say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything will be added to you. But it doesn't mean ignoring where the treasure is. Pearl of great price, same thing. A man is on a business trip, he comes into a market, and he sees a pearl of absolute beauty. The way it shines, its color, the perfection of its symmetry. It's so rare, it's so perfect. What can he do? He's got to have it. He knows it's of tremendous value. He sells everything he has buys the pearl. Jesus said this is like the kingdom of God. This is what we push toward. This is what we work for. So our children need to be taught 
how to be free by living without a portion of what it is that God gives them. It's a reminder of his grace to them. Our children need to be taught the discipline of saving. And our children and ourselves, we need to learn the challenges that go with investing, the risks and the rewards and where value is. You see, God never intended us for us. I, I'm not a prosperity gospel kind of guy. I'm not a, a preacher who stands up and says, take God as a word, be a Christian, and you're going to be rich. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to stand before you and say, accept Jesus and your problems will be over. I'm not the kind of guy who's going to tell you that even the conscientious don't have challenges and problems and surprises that creep up. I'm not here to tell you that if you've had any kind of financial difficulty, it's your fault. It may be, but I'm not here saying that. What I'm here saying is that if we owe, we're owned. And most of us owe. And if we're going to be free and we're going to model freedom for our kids, somehow we've got to take all of this more seriously. We've got to honor God first and we've got to take care of business second. We've got ourselves to model what it means to be disciplined, what it means to save, what it means to invest. Let's turn to that passage in Corinthians because there's other instructive material there for you. Found it, I've finally gotten there. 9, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, people will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, Jesus Christ. Paul's saying so many interesting things here. He's talking about God as the source. And he says the one who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and increase your store of seed. And enlarge the harvest of your good doing, your righteousness. You'll be made rich in order that you might reflect the generosity of God who emptied himself and gave all. The service that you perform will not only supply the needs of the Lord's people. If we were faithful in our tithes, the needs of God people, God's people globally would be answered. But it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service which you have proved yourselves, people will praise God. In other words, 
you will be seen as generous, you will be seen as managing well, and you will attract. It will speak well of the gospel. It, would, it will speak well of what Christ has brought and what Christ has given. These are things that I think we need to pay some attention to, make some changes in, things I think we need to model for our kids. If we're going to be free, we've got to learn to manage money. Debt can't be their lives. So, when God prospers you and you help with the Worthy Student Fund, you're saving a family from potential debt or a student from college loan debt that's as much as it might otherwise be. When you pay, uh, return to God your tithes, you're providing for ministry not just here, but in parts of the world where it's a lot poorer than it is here. When you're generous with God's people and with the community, you speak well of who God is because he's been generous with you. And you model for our young people what it means to be free. See, freedom is found in what you get to give away, not what you keep. Are you clear on that? If God owns everything, then anything you think you own really owns you. I don't know about you, but I can spend hours in a month maintaining a car. Anybody like me? You've got to wash the windshield, fill it with gas. You've got to take it to the oil change place or change the oil yourself. When it breaks down, the mechanic might need one, two, three, four days of time. You have to go find a rental car. You have to get a ride to the rental car. You have to... Am I making sense? And heaven forget, forbid somebody hits you. You've got to call the police maybe if the damage is over $500. You've got to involve the insurance company. You've got to get multiple quotes. If you've done the damage, you might have a lawsuit that follows. If somebody's hurt, it even gets more complicated. Do you own a car? Or does it own you? We need cars in our society. The way we're structured. We've got to drive. We've got to get around. But don't think there's freedom in what you own. There's freedom in what you get to give away. That's the grace that God has given. Because out of the freedom and abundance of the divine, he gave to us the gift of Jesus. All right. I've heard very few amens this sermon, so that's fine. I'm really happy for the wonderful feedback you gave me on last week's sermon. This is just a continuation of that theme because what I want to keep driving home to our congregation is that freedom is multifaceted. It takes many forms. And if our young people are going to be free, we need to reawaken ourselves to some of the standards that, that have been. My grandparents were of a generation just like this couple that sent their tithe in that never failed to, to, to return to God the tithes and offerings. My grandparents were simple people who, if they didn't have money to have something done at the house, they learned to do it and did it themselves. My grandparents were of a generation that my grandpa used to talk about uh, the depression and driving his, his Model T and hearing the tire uh, pop and pulling off to the side of the road only to find out that the spare had blown out because of all the patches on it. They knew how to extend things and make things go and make things work. Now, because of the deprivation, some of them became hoarders. And we have, my son loves the hoarding show on TV. Anybody watch the hoarding show? Aren't those people freaks? That's really, yeah. 
We'll talk later. <laughs> Obviously, your parents haven't seen this show. We'll, we'll catch up on that later. But uh, we live in a society with all kinds of distortions, don't we? Distortions about what brings security, distortions about what brings meaning, distortions about what brings joy, distortions about what it means to be free. We live in a culture with these distortions. And as, an, as a people of God, we've bought into most of them. And it's time. Time we just kind of check ourselves and wake up and say, could it be different? Could God be calling us to something different? I'm going to throw a couple more in because I have time. If you'll turn to the Psalm 96 that was read, in the midst of that, there's an interesting sort of old-fashioned standard that we used to keep that I think, you know, got overplayed when I was a kid. I don't really want to return to the days of my childhood. I hope that I'm not looking back too hard. But I think there's something uh, that we need to recognize in the sacredness. Our society is so casual um, that we don't understand anymore what, what it means for God to be other. A different category of being. Something so righteous and holy that um, demands our, our reverence and our respect. And we've fortunately moved to theology that says God loves us, calls us sons and daughters and friends, and that language makes it so much easier for us to be real with God and to approach God, and these are as it should be. This is what it needs to be. But I think we've forgotten a little bit about his holiness. So here it is. Verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the Lord is, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then it goes into the rejoicing again. We have this idea of bringing an offering and coming to his courts, worshiping him. Our worship is a place to exercise not only our life management skills, but to develop a sense of holiness, being set apart. To develop a sense that when we are here, we're encountering something living. The living word, capital W, Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the living word, small w, this word which speaks from the mouth of God and generates in us something called fruit. This word of God that comes to us and chastens and instructs us. This word of God that helps us get a perspective on when our, per our perspectives are off and when they're on. When the distortions of our world have influenced us too much, it pulls us back. And when we fail to get into the world and seed the world with the goodness and righteousness of God, it pushes us back out. There's power and there's balance there. And one of the old-fashioned standards that I think brings freedom is the ability to come into this place with a different purpose, a different mindset, a different attitude, leaving the world and daily care behind 
bringing it to the foot of the cross, as it were, and leaving it there, and engaging God for all the glory and goodness that's represented in his name and his character and his purpose. These are the things that I would hope for us. And so quite appropriately at this time, those of you who have prepared that offering to bring before the Lord, we will collect it at this time in thanksgiving and encourage one another in every good thing that the fullness of Christ might be revealed in our congregation, in our church, and to our world. Amen. Our God and Father, we ask that on our journey to freedom, you will continue to bless and teach and grace us on our way. In Jesus' name.